This is reaction. Movements, moments, and monsters of the reactionary right. Episode 2 The Pinkertons, Part 2 of 3 Anarchy's Red Hand. After their success with the Molly Maguires, the Pinkerton Agency increased its focus on quashing labor disputes. Between 1877 and 1892, the agency played an active role in at least 70 strikes. They infiltrated labor organizations, offered armed protection for companies, and brought in strikebreakers to cross picket lines. The 1877 Great Railroad Strike was a pivotal moment for the Pinkertons and firmed up their reputation as the private army of capital. Often called the Great Upheaval, the Railroad Strike of 1877 was another product of the Long Depression brought on by the Panic of 1873. The unrest began in West Virginia when the company Baltimore and Ohio Railroad cut workers' wages for the third time in a single year. Strikers prevented trains from moving demanding that the railroad rescind the last wage decrease. It quickly turned into a wave of general strikes that cropped up in Baltimore, Chicago, St. Louis, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and many other cities and towns where the railroad was a major employer. A combination of federal troops, state militias, vigilante groups, and hired mercenaries like the Pinkertons invaded city after city, brutally suppressing the strikes. After 45 days and the deaths of at least 100 people, the strikes were subdued, with nearly no concessions made to workers. But although the strikes didn't earn any immediate gains, they did lay the groundwork for a more robust union infrastructure going into the 1880s. Another effect of the Great Upheaval was the construction of heavily fortified urban armories and the creation of both public and private militias tasked with keeping the peace in industrial cities. The Pinkertons and other agencies found the market for private armed forces ever-increasing. More broadly, there was a fear among the public that a great socialist revolution in the style of the 1871 Paris Commune was brewing, and Alan Pinkerton played up this threat to great effect. He argued that European immigrants were bringing communist and anarchist political philosophies to America and that only the morally upstanding Pinkerton agents could protect the country's institutions from their threat. Reflecting on the urban worker uprisings, Pinkerton wrote, Citizens of the United States must not forget this constant and increasing danger, and must work heartily and unanimously towards its suppression. Communism and anarchism were like a virus spread by European immigrants to the working-class masses, inducing them to disruption and violence. But wages and working conditions didn't figure into Pinkerton's calculations at all. Despite his own experiences working with the Scottish Chartist movement, he seemed to have had a tough time sympathizing with the plights of workers, and rather than wage cuts or tensions escalated by industrialists and their use of armed guards, Pinkerton blamed radical politics. When it came to the worker uprisings in Chicago during the Great Strike, he singled out one figure in particular— someone who will play an important role in the coming conflicts. In his 1878 book, Strikers, Communists, Tramps, and Detectives, he wrote, It is a notable fact in connection with these communists that their viciousness and desperation were largely caused by the rantings of a young American communist named Parsons. Pinkerton's book outlines a lot of his feelings about the long strike, 
And if you'd like to hear a few chapters from it, as well as from his novel on the Molly Maguires, you can support the show at patreon.com slash reaction podcast. Despite the public's fears of revolution, Pinkerton may have overestimated their sympathy with the capitalist class. The era of the New Deal and broad progressive reforms is just a few short decades away, and the fact is that many average working people felt more affinity to the strikers than the railroad and mining companies. While Pinkerton was trading on his reputation as an enforcer of the peace and the legal protection of property, after 1877 they were increasingly perceived as armed thugs that unfairly targeted honest working men. After Alan Pinkerton's death in 1884, the agency moved into the hands of his sons William and Robert. Unlike their father, the Pinkerton brothers grew up in a solidly middle-class home and lacked even the free labor ideology of Alan. As the brothers expanded the agency, its reputation as the private army of capital grew. As one paper at the time put it, Since the death of the elder Pinkerton, the organization has increased in strength and efficiency until, at present, it is recognized as the great private resource by large corporations for the protection of lives and property in times of stress and storm. More and more, the agency was relying on the loose purse strings of rich industrialists to stay afloat. There was a real fear that the Pinkertons heralded a new form of feudalism in which employers could hire what amounted to murderers to keep workers in line. American ideals of republicanism considered feudalism repugnant and contrary to the very spirit of the country. At least if you set aside that whole slavery thing, which patriotic Americans have always been pretty good at doing. But criticisms of the legality of private interests hiring a private army were already bubbling up, especially among left-wing thinkers and activists. Terence Powderly, head of the Knights of Labor, told a General Assembly in 1885 that the introduction of the Pinkerton detective as an agent in the settlement of disputes is entirely foreign to the letter and spirit of the constitution of our common country. The men who make up the Pinkerton army are gathered in from the gambling dens and slums of our large cities and are composed of creatures who are outcasts from decent society. Their introduction for the purpose of settling disputes through force of arms is an insult to society everywhere. A year later, the publication The Nation put it bluntly that the presence of Pinkertons in labor disputes was an unmistakable sign of retrogression towards medieval barbarism. But these critics weren't just talking specifically about Alan Pinkerton's agency. The name had become a kind of shorthand for all detective agencies of the sort. The fact that Pinkerton had become synonymous with the hired hands of industrialists is a testament to their widespread use and the extreme lengths they would go to on behalf of their clients. One of the Pinkerton's escapades stands out as a real high-water mark in the workers' movements of the Gilded Age. It's arguably one of the most consequential events in the history of American labor movements, the Haymarket Affair. By the 1880s, most American workers worked around 10 hours a day, six days a week. The movement for an eight-hour workday became a key demand from labor unions, with slogans like, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, and eight hours for what you will, and eight-hour day with no cut in pay. In 1884, the Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions held a convention, and they picked May 1, 1886 as the day by which their employers must meet their demands for a shorter workday. This is the origin of International Workers' Day, or May Day, and although it began in the United States, 
By 1889, it was exported to many other countries as a day to commemorate the Haymarket Affair. Today, the American Labor Day is celebrated in September, but to much of the rest of the world, Labor Day is celebrated on the date that kicked off the events at Haymarket. By May 1st, the industrialists had not met the demands of the unions. A strike was called, and as many as half a million workers across the country rallied. Chicago became the epicenter of the movement, with estimates of 70,000 people in the streets. Workers at the McCormick Harvesting Machine Company had been locked out, a tactic used by managers to force workers to concede to terms of employment. As with so many labor disputes at the time, many of the workers were ethnic minorities, Irish, German, Polish, and Italian immigrants. Pinkertons had been unleashed on McCormick workers in an earlier strike, and by 1886, McCormick had hundreds of armed guards, both state and private, protecting strikebreakers. On May 3rd, workers rallied at the company to confront management and strikebreakers. The strike had been mostly peaceful by this point, and though tensions were high, the confrontation between workers and scabs was mostly unremarkable, until armed guards fired into the crowd. Several workers were killed. August Spees, one of the leaders of the McCormick strike, would later testify at his trial, I was very indignant. I knew from experience of the past that this butchering of people was done for the express purpose of defeating the eight-hour movement. The killings ramped up workers' outrage, and union leaders began distributing flyers calling for mass rebellion. One was emblazoned with the words, Revenge! Working men to arms! It was printed side by side in English and German, and told workers, Your masters sent out their bloodhounds, the police. They killed six of your brothers at McCormick this afternoon. They killed the poor wretches because they, like you, had the courage to disobey the supreme will of your bosses. They killed them because they dared ask for the shortening of the hours of toil. They killed them to show you, free American citizens, that you must be satisfied and contented with whatever your bosses condescend to allow you, or you will be killed. You have for years endured the most abject humiliations. You have for years suffered unmeasurable iniquities. You have worked yourself to death. You have endured the pangs of want and hunger. Your children you have sacrificed to the factory lords. In short, you have been miserable and obedient slaves all these years. Why? To satisfy the insatiable greed? To fill the coffers of your lazy, thieving master? When you ask them now to lessen your burden, he sends his bloodhounds to shoot you, kill you. If you are men, if you are the sons of your grandsires, who have shed their blood to free you, then you will rise in your might, Hercules, and destroy the hideous monster that seeks to destroy you. To arms we call you, to arms. And that's exactly what they did. On May 4th, hundreds showed up in Chicago's Haymarket Square to hear the labor leader speak. August Spees spoke first, insisting that their intention was not to start a riot, but to draw attention to the killings the day before. Albert Parsons, the man Pinkerton blamed for the Chicago uprisings during the Great Strike, also spoke, along with Samuel Fielden, encouraging the workers to hold fast to the cause of the eight-hour workday. The mayor of Chicago, Carter Harrison, stayed briefly to hear the speakers, and the scene was calm enough that he left without worry. Rain began to fall, and the crowd was already dispersing.
Just as Fielden was wrapping up his fiery speech, police arrived and demanded the remaining attendees leave the area. The police began to charge the wagon on which Fielden was standing, armed with guns and clubs. Suddenly, a device was thrown into the horde of policemen, a homemade dynamite bomb. Chaos ensued. Witnesses to the events reported that immediately after the blast, police began firing into the crowd of demonstrators, though some media outlets reported that the protesters shot first. Regardless, a few short minutes later, Haymarket Square was completely abandoned. Neither demonstrators nor police remained, only the dead. But riots continued in the surrounding area for hours after that. Seven police were killed, and the number of dead workers remains unknown. At least four were killed, but the numbers are likely much higher. Many of the wounded, fearing arrest, didn't seek any medical attention. The Chicago Herald reported at least 50 dead civilians. The coverage of the Haymarket Affair, also called the Haymarket Riot and the Haymarket Massacre, largely favored the police, initially anyway. The New York Times headlined the incident with Anarchy's Red Hand, Rioting and Bloodshed in the Streets of Chicago. The paper depicted the workers as villainous anarchists who deliberately instigated the conflict, even putting scare quotes around the term working men. You can listen to the full article on Patreon. It's an incredibly vivid and harrowing account. These reports and others convinced much of the public that the anarchist agitators were entirely to blame for the incident stripping away the context of the police show of force and the killings the day before. It's a tactic we see today as well. Police show up to largely peaceful demonstrations armed to the teeth, turning an already tense situation into a deadly one. Then demonstrators are blamed for the violence. A brutal red scare ensued. Police raided the homes of alleged anarchists, rounding up anyone even remotely suspected of participating in the Haymarket rally. Immigrants were especially targeted. Labor activists had their homes, meeting places, and businesses ransacked. During a raid, police found bomb-making material similar to the one thrown at Haymarket, solidifying the suspicion that anarchist labor activists were responsible for the incident. Now, all that was left to do was to prove it. Key to this task was a man named Andrew Johnson, a Pinkerton spy who claimed to have infiltrated the Chicago anarchist circle. A month after the Haymarket Massacre, eight anarchists were put on trial for the bombing. Six were of German descent, the other two British. The defendants included the three men who spoke in the square, August Spees, Albert Parsons, and Samuel Fielden, and five others, Adolf Fischer, Michael Schwab, George Engel, Louis Ling, and Oscar Nieb. From the beginning, it was clear that the entire trial was tainted by prejudice against the men, both in the media and in the courtroom. The presiding judge, Joseph Gary, showed open contempt for the defendants. Jury selection was an absolute mess. Anyone with even the smallest tie to unionism or labor politics was dismissed while many of the selected jurors expressed explicit bias against the defendants. 
the judge ruled in favor of the prosecution at every available opportunity. He denied the men their request to be tried individually. He refused to maintain order in the court. It was, to be frank, a shit show. The majority of the evidence presented at trial was testimony from police and witnesses, as well as the writings and speeches of the defendants themselves. None of it directly implicated any of them in throwing the bomb. Much of the testimony was riddled with contradictions and obvious prejudice against labor activists in general. The prosecution relied on the argument that it was the anarchists' failure to prevent the bombing that made them as guilty as the individual who actually threw the bomb. Pinkerton spy Andrew Johnson's testimony was particularly captivating, claiming that he heard Fielden and Parsons say that a few explosions in Chicago would help their movement, that Spees had said inexperienced National Guardsmen could be easily scattered by a few bombs, and that the anarchists had specifically chosen May 1st to start an anti-government revolution. He also admitted that the anarchists hated the Pinkertons, that they considered them a lot of cold-blooded murderers and the worst enemies the working man has, and they are all in the pay of the capitalists. In this last statement, at least, Johnson was telling the truth. The only physical evidence the prosecution presented was a chemical analysis of the shrapnel recovered at Haymarket Square with some bomb-making supplies found at the home of Louis Ling. The analysis of the metal showed that they were of similar composition, not exact, which would be expected given that so many theoretical bomb-makers would have gotten the metal parts from the same source, the McCormick factory. Furthermore, anarchists were well known to share all sorts of resources, including weapons manufacture. Would this evidence have been enough to convict the men with a fair judge, a fair jury, and a fair press? Were they convicted based on a persuasive case made by the prosecution, or based on their political beliefs and ethnicities? Albert Parsons insisted until his death that the bomb had been thrown by a Pinkerton provocateur. The credibility of the Pinkertons was already suspect, especially among working men, and the theory that a Pinkerton had thrown the bomb became popular. Writing from his prison cell, Parsons declared, The Haymarket tragedy was undoubtedly the work of a deep-laid monopolistic conspiracy originating in New York City and engineered by the Pinkerton thugs. I say that a Pinkerton man, or a member of the Chicago police force itself, had as much inducement to throw that bomb as I had, and why? because it would demonstrate the necessity for their existence and result in an increase of their pay and their wages. Are these people any too good to do such a thing? Are they any better than I am? Are their motives any better than my own? Seven years later, the governor of Illinois would agree. Seven of the Haymarket anarchists were sentenced to execution by hanging. Oscar Neeb was sentenced to 15 years in prison. A year after the sentencing, Fielden and Schwab's sentences were commuted to life in prison. The night before his execution, Louis Ling committed suicide rather than face the gallows. He had smuggled a blasting cap into his cell, put it in his mouth, and detonated it. The blast didn't kill him immediately, and he suffered in agony for six hours before dying. The trial drew a great deal of outrage among the labor movement broadly and several prominent figures in particular. Writers George Bernard Shaw, William Morris, and Oscar Wilde all criticized the verdicts. In 1893, 
The Illinois governor, John Peter Altgeld, pardoned the remaining survivors, Fielden, Schwab, and Neeb. He called the men victims of hysteria, packed juries, and a biased judge. He argued that the state had never identified who threw the bomb, and that the evidence in no way proved the guilt of the men who would come to be known as the Haymarket Martyrs. The governor charged that much of the evidence used against the defendants was fabricated by the prosecution, and that the meeting had been peaceful and orderly before the police arrived and riled up the crowd. He even blamed the Pinkertons for their repeated use of extraordinary violence against strikers. With the pardon, Governor Altgeld reversed one of the Pinkertons' greatest achievements. Historians have since debated the extent to which the Haymarket trial was fair, whether the defendants were truly responsible for the bombing, and the likelihood that a Pinkerton was involved. Their reputation as enemies of labor and their documented use of underhanded tactics and exaggerated reports has only contributed to the suspicions that Pinkerton spies were not mere bystanders to the events at Haymarket. But the accusation that a Pinkerton threw the bomb was rejected even by many anarchists at the time, even by Parsons' own wife, Lucy. It seems most likely that it was not a provocateur who was responsible for the bombing, but probably a disgruntled worker or one of the anarchist leaders who escaped trial. There was even a strange report by a barkeep from Indianapolis who claimed to have spoken to a stranger traveling from New York to Chicago the day before the bombing. He said he wanted to observe the labor situation there. The stranger gestured to the sack he carried, telling the barkeep, You will hear of some trouble there very soon. Albert Parsons argued that New York capitalists had sent the man to discredit the eight-hour movement. We'll never know the true identity of the bomber, but the suspicion around the Pinkertons speaks volumes to the rabid hatred and mistrust of them among working people. The events in Chicago further solidified the Pinkertons' reputation as the armed thugs of industrialists. It also made them more visible in the national struggle between labor and capital, which only heated up following Haymarket. Some of the finest minds of leftism were inspired by the Haymarket martyrs, including Emma Goldman, Alexander Berkman, Bill Haywood, and Voltairine de Clare. Albert Parsons' wife, Lucy, a brilliant thinker and one of the most prominent black women in the history of the U.S. labor movement, would go on to help found the industrial workers of the world. After Haymarket, union membership soared, labor became more effectively organized, and public sympathy was trending toward workers' movements. The Pinkertons were losing their grip on the narrative that they were the good guys. The increasingly poor reputation of the Pinkertons would reach its zenith in the Homestead Strike of 1892. This event, more than any other, made the legality of Pinkerton tactics a national debate. As one publication at the time put it, The agency was a body of questionable legal status at best, and one whose chief functions have been to intensify rather than to suppress strife among wage workers. The Homestead Strike, also known as the Homestead Massacre, began in July of 1892 in Homestead, Pennsylvania. The Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers was in conflict with the Carnegie Steel Company, and two things set this conflict apart from previous labor struggles. First, the AA Union was more organized than the largely leaderless mass movements of the preceding decades. And second, it was one of the most dramatic conflicts between workers and armed forces in the history of American labor. 
Though industrialist Andrew Carnegie had in the past expressed support for unionism, by the early 1890s he was fed up with the demands of the Amalgamated Association. He ordered his supervisor Henry Frick to break up the union and prepare for a strike, which Frick did by increasing inventory and building 12-foot-high fortifications around the steel mills, equipped with rifle holes and sniper towers, water mains that could blast strikers with boiling water, and an electrified fence. Workers began calling the mills Fort Frick. Then, in July of 1892, Frick entered into secret negotiations with the Pinkertons. In late June, collective bargaining agreements between Frick and the Union were disintegrating, and Frick locked the Union out of the plant. The Union then declared a strike, and workers at other Carnegie plants joined with them in a show of solidarity. Workers established picket lines around the plant to keep strike breakers out, and worked in 24-hour shifts to protect the line and patrol the nearby Monongahela River. Strangers were escorted out of the city limits. Press were given special badges to wear that could be revoked if the workers felt they were reporting unfairly on the action, and tavern owners were asked to keep their patrons from getting too drunk. Meanwhile, Carnegie Steel started running ads for strikebreakers in cities across the country. After a few days of the strikers successfully keeping scabs and supervisors out of the plant, Frick called in the sheriff. But when sheriff's deputies tried to disperse the strike, they were herded onto a boat and sent downriver. These highly organized activities on both sides, the industrialists with their fortifications, the workers escorting strangers from the city and sending deputies down the Monongahela River, made the events at Homestead stand out from other labor actions of the time. The previous fights had made both labor and capital better prepared. But the conflict was only just heating up. Then, on July 6th, eight days after the strike began, Frick called in the Pinkertons. Three hundred men arrived by barge, armed with rifles. The Union had anticipated the arrival of the Pinkertons and sent boats down the river to meet them. When they encountered the barge, they alerted the strikers on shore who blew the plant whistle, a signal meant to draw civilians to the area for a standoff against the agents. Thousands of men, women, and children arrived. The time was 2 a.m. Two hours later, the Pinkerton barges attempted to land. The crowd threw stones at them before tearing down the fencing around the mills and occupying the Carnegie Steel compound. As the Pinkertons disembarked, shots were fired. Witnesses disagreed as to which side shot first, but over the course of a ten-minute firefight, there were wounded and dead on both sides. Two Pinkertons were killed and twelve were wounded. On land, two civilians were killed and eleven wounded. As the sun rose that morning, the Pinkertons again tried to land on shore and were met with more shots from strikers. The agents fired into the crowd again, killing four more people. At that point, many of the agents started to retreat, but the battle continued into the afternoon. Workers tried to set the Pinkerton barges on fire with oil poured into the river, but the attempt failed. Finally, at 5 p.m., the Pinkertons surrendered, flying a white flag and asking to speak with the strikers. As they disembarked, they were disarmed and marched through the crowd as men and women threw stones at them. Several agents were beaten badly, and the barges were ransacked and burned down. 
In exchange for the release of the agents, state officials promised union leadership that the men would be charged with murder. But once the captured Pinkertons arrived in Pittsburgh, the officials reneged and the men were all released. All told, the strikers suffered at least seven deaths and 11 injuries. Numbers on the Pinkerton side are less certain, with as many as eight dead and 30 wounded. Though the strike continued, once the Pinkertons left town, the tensions diffused some. On July 9th, union representatives met with Pennsylvania Governor Robert Pattison to assure him that order had been restored in Homestead. But he was unconvinced. He believed that the union had taken control of the entire city, but he was also aware that his re-election hinged on continued support from the Carnegie political machine, and that in order to keep that support, he had to act to protect the plant. On July 12, 1892, more than 6,000 state militia troops arrived in Homestead, taking only 30 minutes to break the strikers' forces. The next day, new employees arrived at the plant, many of them black, and a week later, the non-union black and white workers were at each other's throats. Meanwhile, the now unemployed union workers appealed to public officials to convince Carnegie and Frick to reopen negotiations. They refused. Weeks later, Alexander Berkman, the anarchist I mentioned earlier who was inspired by the Haymarket Affair, plotted an assassination against Frick. He entered his office, shooting and stabbing Frick multiple times. Though the supervisor survived, the assassination attempt dealt a final blow to the Union's already dreary reputation. Berkman was imprisoned, the Union lost all public support and collapsed, and the workers went back to work at the reduced wages they had fought so terribly to improve. Meanwhile, the Long Depression continued, and Union efforts across the Midwest failed one after another. The great golden age of militant worker power in the second half of the 19th century seemed to be in decline. The Red Scare that followed the First World War would see even more radicals purged from the labor movement. Unions would, of course, continue to have huge successes in the 20th century, including winning the eight-hour day for many workers well before the New Deal established the 40-hour week, but the mechanisms of success were very different, and the progressive era of roughly 1900 to 1930 saw state intervention and managerialism play a much bigger role than armed resistance to industrialists. But militant unionism wasn't the only institution that changed dramatically. The Homestead Massacre was as much a stain on the reputation of the Pinkertons as it was on the Amalgamated Association. A series of congressional investigations in the wake of Homestead led to the 1893 Anti-Pinkerton Act, which prohibited the government from hiring private entities like the Pinkertons as an armed force. You might be thinking to yourself, wait, prohibited from hiring private armed forces? So this law was repealed, right? After all, the federal government's controversial use of Blackwater is common knowledge, and private military contractors have been used by the United States around the world. What meaningful distinction is there between the Pinkertons and the private military contractors of today? Well, that's a topic for part three of The Pinkertons. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reaction. 
If you like the show, please rate and review it, and consider supporting my work by visiting patreon.com slash reactionpodcast. There you can find all the episode scripts, as well as bonus audio content that supplements the main episodes. Follow the show on Twitter at Reaction Podcast for episode updates and commentary on current events. Send your questions or feedback to reactionpod at gmail.com. This show is produced by me, Brittany Gill. Until next time.